You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, we're going to get started. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Revelation chapter 15. It's been about seven weeks since our last application Sunday um, with Easter thrown in there. Um, We'll cover the last five or six sermons, I think, um, and kind of recap those. I've got a application question for each one of those sermons for us to kind of ask, and then also an opportunity for you to give some immediate feedback on maybe how some things have been applied in your life. So encourage that feedback as we get to it. But we'll go to uh, Revelation 15. And really the past two months have come out of Revelation 15 and 16. So I'm going to read both those chapters just so we can remind ourselves of where we've been. Um, But before we do that, let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for the chance to gather together as our church family. We thank you um, for getting us here safely this morning. We thank you for the rain that you're providing and how it uh, takes care of us. Um, Father, I pray that our time together this morning would be an encouragement as we have time to pause and reflect and um, think back on the things that you've been teaching us with the intention of thinking through how to apply it as we continue to move forward. Um, Father, help us to have healthy discussion this morning. Pray that you would draw to remembrance the things that you've been teaching us. Um, give us insight in how to apply it. And Father, I pray that our time afterwards as we get to eat together and hang out and fellowship a bit, um, Father, that would be an encouragement as well as we get a chance to make contact with each other after a busy week, um, that we would use it as a means of encouraging each other. So uh, give us grace in our speech today as we talk together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their uh, hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. (coughs) Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. 
they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." All right, um, kind of backing up to chapter uh, 15 at the very beginning. We were there, um, I guess, six weeks ago or so. Um, we talked about that worship by the seashore that took place. Um, from a summary sentence standpoint, we said, God is revealed beyond sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and to give him glory in order to avoid his just wrath. And so we talked about our responsibilities as believers to fear God, to give him glory, if, if you fail to do that, if that's not what you are, if that's not what your life's about, if you're not saved to that, then God's wrath um, is what's in store. And so we talked a little bit about why we should fear God and why we should glorify God. And from that passage, we talked about how God preserves his people. Um, the idea there is people celebrating by that seashore. It's people who have been preserved from trials and temptations and deception that those things have not undone God's people that they have survived the trials, they have survived the temptations, they have survived the deception. Um, And it will continue to get greater as we look towards Jesus coming back and God's people survive it. God's people do not give in to it. Um, It was interesting, uh, Ben and Topi and I had the chance to go fishing this weekend and one of the things that we did on the way down is we watched a video um, put out about the ministry of Rob Bell and how he was an evangelical pastor for a while and then began to move in a different direction to where his church wouldn't even allow him to stay as the pastor of his church. Now he's out in California and he's kind of doing this speaking circuit where he is traveling around talking about God, talking about the Bible, but doing so in a completely different way than we understand traditional Christianity, right? And so they're interviewing people that are now followers of his teachings. And it's interesting because it's people that would describe themselves as people who never really bought into the gospel or the, the, the traditional understanding of Christianity. So it kind of confirms what we've been talking about, that when deception and false teachers continue to come on the scene, the only people they really deceive and trick are people that were never believers to begin with. I mean, to hear these people talk, these are people who grew up in church, yes. These are people who grew up uh, with Christian parents, potentially, yes. But to hear them describe their previous understanding of the church and of the gospel faith, it's it's not genuine, it's not true. 
These are people who, who never really responded to the gospel that are now moving away from a traditional understanding of Christianity to this new teaching or this new philosophy, this new movement. Um, and that type of stuff's going to continue to come. And I was even sharing with Ben and Topi, I said, man, this guy, this guy had a lot of Christians that were intrigued by him. I told you even my own initial intrigue by him. And then I think he moved way too quickly and kind of jumped way ahead in some of his teachings to where it immediately threw up some red flags for people and boom, his church is saying, hey, you gotta, you gotta step away, right? But I told them, I said, man, I think he paved the way for more people to come behind him that will be more readily accepted by people within the church. I think he, I think he moved a little too fast. I think red flags went up very quickly before some of his deception could really creep in. There's a lot of churches now that just completely reject his teaching. But I think he's paved the way for more deception, more false teaching to come. He's kind of the, the pioneer for some of this stuff, some of these teachings. And it was just interesting to, to hear and see how his influence um, is continuing to grow. Again, not within the church, but kind of on the fringes of the church, people who are, are beginning to follow his movement. God's people survive it. God's people aren't undone by that type of teaching. Um, God preserves them, and, and we, should, we should honor him and fear him and glorify him because he preserves his people. He's sovereign over all. We see all nations coming to worship him. We've talked about Revelation points to the idea that when, when eternity is ushered in, it's going to include people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's just and true and righteous. We see people celebrating in heaven um, his acts and how they are moral expressions of his character that he's a good God who does good things and we should worship him for that. We also see his holiness being described here, um, that he is uniquely different and that God has revealed himself that way and he certainly warrants our worship because he is holy. Um, He's worthy of our worship because he controls things for our good and he repays injustice done to us. We've talked about how when we want to be in charge of our life, it's typically motivated because we want to control things for our good or we want to control things to pay back people who have done wrong to us. And God assures us that he does both of those things better than we ever could. God has promised that he always works good for his children and he will always bring justice appropriately when the end comes and he returns. And that leaves us with a question that I want to pose to you guys from an application standpoint. What does it mean for you to fear God and give him glory? And how are you doing this daily? Because again, you go back and read through Revelation 1 through 16, you're gonna see this idea that we have a responsibility to fear him and to glorify him with our lives. And that's what helps define us as being a follower of the lamb, is that we fear God, we give him glory. So if somebody were to ask you that, somebody sits down and reads Revelation and they're, they're seeing this and they're trying to ask themselves, do I fear God, do I glorify God? They pose the question to you, how would you respond? What is... What does your daily decision-making look like as someone who's trying to fear God and to glorify him with your life? Any thoughts or insight on how this translates to you on a daily basis, what it looks like to fear God and to give him glory, how, how you would show some examples of that in your own life? It doesn't have to be real deep or insightful, just, you know, as, as an individual Christian, how, how are you thinking through this? What does this look like for you tomorrow? How are you going to seek to fear God and give him glory tomorrow? What does that look like? Just by using um, discernment and, you know, with certain types of 
people that you kind of surround yourself with, the conversations you engage in or you don't engage in. Um, even Tyson, Sarah, and I were talking about this yesterday, like type of music or television shows or, you know, just the way the way that you live, the way that you speak, your vocabulary, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, tomorrow should look differently because you're a Christian versus if you weren't. All right, we were, <laughs> we were sitting yesterday at uh, Sonic on the way home eating dinner, and I, and I asked Ben and Toby, I said, what do you think is the number one thing that would be different about your life if you didn't follow Jesus? Like, give me the, the one thing that you know without a doubt would be different. And Topi said, I'm just kidding, I won't say it. <laughs> You're like, ah. um, No, that was definitely private talk for the three of us at Sonic uh, yesterday, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just kind of challenging him. I was like, what would... <laughs> What would life look like if you, weren't, if you weren't a Christian? Like, what's the one thing that you would say, man, this would be, this would be way different if I didn't follow Jesus? Um, so, I mean, it should look differently. Tomorrow should look differently. Um, there should be a different level of discernment based on how you act than if you weren't a believer. Other thoughts on what it looks like for you personally to fear God and to, to bring him glory with your life? Well, Macy actually asked last week, what does it mean to fear God? Because I don't want to be afraid of God. So we had some conversations about that, but I basically was trying to explain to her, like, you know, well, it's it's hard to explain it to a kid, and it's hard to even, to me, understand it myself completely, but part of the way I was trying to explain to her was, like, we, we then, because we fear him, we want to know him, so that's why we read our Bible. That's why we memorize our Bible. That's why we, you know, everything that we do throughout the day, bring it back to What's God doing in this? God is so big and so in control. Like, how do we bring it back? So it's been really neat this week to talk with her, like, every day. As we do things, we're like, oh, well, you know, God God did this. And even in reading, and, and the reason she had asked was because one of the Bible verses they're memorizing is fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's, she'll, I don't want to fear God. I want to love him. I don't want to fear him. And um, so I tried to explain to her that, like, you know, Daddy, you almost fear Daddy. Like, you want to be obedient to Daddy. You want to do what pleases him because you love him. And so she kind of, I think she understood that, and, and that's been really encouraging. But um, but it's been neat for me this week to see and to try to be mindful because, like, I don't think I'm mindful of this really until my kids bring it up and then we focus on it. But. Are there thoughts? Yep. Oftentimes I fear man more than God. So what that looks like is not witnessing to people and going out of my way to talk about Jesus because I fear what they're going to say to me mm-hmm. and how they're going to react. But if we're fearing the Lord more than man, we're going to want to do what he says in his, in his word. Absolutely. Right. Good. Yep. So I had a situation this week where a water pipe busted in my house. It was Thursday. It was, exa- it was exhausting. And my first prayer was, okay, Lord, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here because never had this happen. I don't know what to do. And my first call was to my work to tell them, hey, guess what? I'm not coming in today. And the guy that answered the phone was like, well, you need to do this. You need to call your insurance company. You need to do it. You need to make sure you're You need to fan on. You need to do it. Blah, blah, blah. It was like list by list exactly what I needed. And later on, I was talking to my mom, and she was like, I don't know how you're not freaking out. I'd be freaking out if this was me. And I'm like, 
well, you know, God saw this coming of what, you know, surprise to him. It's a surprise to me, and it's just how I have to deal with it. And every person that came to my house, I felt like, was sent there by him. Uh, the guy who was there the longest time was actually a Christian, and we kind of grew up in the same area, and we got, I mean, it was just like I'd met a brother in Christ. And I spent the afternoon, and he was ripping out a wall, and we were talking about the old time, you know, where we grew up at and stuff like that. So it was just a... You know, it's just one of those things you have to deal with in life. That I could sit around going, ah, but, you know, I know that God's got it under control and it'll all be taken care of and hopefully things will be better. It won't happen again, but it was the best possible situation in the worst possible situation. Yeah. I guess. But so, you know, don't let your circumstances dictate, I guess, how you view God in that situation because he was good the whole time. Yeah. I think Rahab's such a great example of what it looks like to fear God. If you read that story in Joshua 2, um, when she's talking with the spies before Israel comes into the promised land, I mean, she's describing her fear of God, that, that everybody's terrified of him in the promised land. They're scared to death that Israel's going to come and, and just wipe them out. And she, she testifies to the fact that, man, I, I, we believe your God is this and this and this. Um, and, and every indication in that passage is that, well, if you really believe this, you ought to be running away. Like you ought to, you ought to be, you know, a thousand miles from here if you're that scared of, of Israel's God. But what you see her doing is begging to come with them, begging to be a part of their team. I mean, it's, it's an understanding that, man, he's the most fearful thing and, and the right thing is to be on his side. And so to fear God is to, is to see that it's really not to be afraid of God. It's to be afraid of life without him. Um, it's, to, it's to be afraid of what it would look like to be on the opposite side of his workings. We've talked about his, um, his presence in our life, right? And, that, and that, that, um, that active presence, that good presence, that positive presence in our life where he is working for our good. Um, that's what I think Rahab recognizes. She says, man, I could run away, but even life away from Israel's God, it's going to catch up to me at some point. Like you guys are pushing forward, you're plowing forward, you're conquering people in your way. My really only hope of salvation is to to get on your side, to get on your side and go with you. And so, um, you know, just thinking in terms of daily basis, decisions that we make, things that we've been talking about, you know, the the striving to repent of sin, confess sin, um, keep ourselves pure. Like all those things ought to be filtered through a mindset of, I want to to give God glory and I fear my life if I, if I weren't on his side. Um, so I'd encourage you to continue to think through what it means to give him glory and to fear him regularly. All right, we moved into uh, the bold judgments the next week. Um, and so the summary sentence from that week, God is intentional in his efforts to draw mankind to repentance and will judge him fairly if he fails to do so. And so we see these bold judgments, and we told you that it's, it's confusing, like it's hard to understand exactly what does this look like, how do these things actually happen in history. Um, but what we said is that there's some things that are really clear that we need to focus on. The fact is, is that God does these things, and God is very intentional to state people failed to repent after these things continued to happen. And so what we see is God's love and mercy and grace in that he brings um, he brings judgment in waves, basically, before he brings that final judgment and shows up on the final day. He brings um, prerequisite-type judgments, right? Like these judgments that lead up to it. And the goal is for people to repent 
in light of that judgment. And what we see is man's hardened heart continuing to love his sin more than God. And so we talked about being fearful of a God who judges the wicked. We see this in the first bowl. So looking back at Revelation 16, in the first bowl judgment, says the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. A couple chapters before that, we talked about what it meant for people to bear the mark of the beast and worship its image that ultimately God's punishment comes upon idolatry. And so we can be fearful of a God who judges the wicked. We want to make sure that we're not in the wicked category, right? We want to make sure that we've been saved by the work of Christ and we've escaped his wrath. We can be thankful for a God who is right in his judgments. In bowl two and three, God brings uh, judgment as well. But we see the echoes from heaven coming, and it says, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And then it goes on to say in verse six, It is what they deserve. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we can be thankful that God judges appropriately, um, and he's judging people who fail to love him and fail to love others. These are people who have persecuted the believers, persecuted the church. It says they've shed the blood of saints. They've shed the blood of prophets. They've given them blood to drink. And so God is judging people based on the two most important commandments, right? He says, love God and love others. And people that fail to do that are people that fall under his wrath. Be mindful of God's action that should lead to repentance. We said that, bowl four, the idea here is that people fail to repent, and so we need to be conscious in our own lives that when God is working and doing things, that he may be trying to draw repentance out of us as well. Be careful in blaming God for your misfortunes. We see people responding inappropriately. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. His kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. <coughs> they did not repent of their deeds. Again, what we have here is a group of people that are in sin. God's disciplining them, judging them for their sin. They don't repent. Instead, they blame God. They curse God. It's God's fault for what's happening to them. It's their fault, right? Like that's the indication of the passage here. And if they repent, God would relent of this activity. <coughs> but they fail to do that. Uh, be discerning in regards to miraculous signs, which is bowl six. We talked about the fact that... Um, Satan's powerful, and Satan, God, God allows Satan to be powerful. God allows Satan to be deceptive, and we need to be on guard for that. We need to expect that Satan will do things that will look very, <coughs> very Christ-like at times. Um, that, that some of the things that he may accomplish, some of the churches that may spring up that, that are not doctrinally sound may be, may be performing things that, that are hard to explain. And we should expect that because Satan does have power. What we need to also expect then is that um, God's wrath will come upon those things. And so we need to be careful and guarded um, and not be deceived by power and influence. Um, that's found in bowl six, bowl seven. <coughs> be watchful for God who is coming as promised. We see there at the end that God does show up, that Jesus does show up and he brings final judgment with that seventh bowl. All right, the application question. <coughs> That, that we talked about in this sermon, are you faithfully pursuing confession and repentance in your life? Um, I challenge you to kind of rethink uh, this discipline in your own life. Are you regularly evaluating yourself and evaluating the sins in your life? Are you taking opportunity to confess sin and repent of sin? 
Um, and I even challenged you as well to, to think about the idea of asking others in your life to maybe help identify blind spots in your life. There may be some things that, that are in your life that need to be confessed, and you're not confessing them because you're not even aware of it, right? Like, we need to be humble, and, and we need to be humble enough, and we need to take sin seriously enough that we would ask somebody in our accountability group, hey, <coughs> you guys hear me confess stuff all the time. Is there anything that I'm not confessing that I need to be confessing? Things that you see in my life that, that still need to be weeded out. I would encourage you to, to think and pray about doing that um, as well. <coughs> in light of that, it led us into a kind of a standalone sermon about the discipline of confession and repentance. I wanted to give you some further insight in how to look at doing this in your own life. So from a summary sentence standpoint, we said regular confession brings greater sensitivity to the presence of our sin and through the Spirit's power allows us to experience cleansing and healing which should lead to a decrease in its regularity in our lives. Regular confession brings sensitivity to our sin. <clears throat> and this is where it's important to have a good doctrine, good doctrinal understanding of what confession means for a believer, right? Like we talk about confession as far as people confessing, repenting, and being saved. And we also understand that to mean that our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, that God forgives all those sins. So why would a Christian need to continue confessing sin if it's already been forgiven? And we talked about the fact that it's a way for us to remain sensitive to sin in our life. Um, that it's a way for us to experience the change that, that God desires for us in our life. And so I wrote down three key points just to share with you real quickly from that sermon. One, we confess to be saved, right? Like that's that initial confession. We confess to be saved. We need Jesus's work to save us. <coughs> but then we confess to be changed. We need the Holy Spirit's work to conform us, okay? So we confess so that Jesus's work saves us, we confess so that the Holy Spirit's work conforms us, that he is sanctifying us. In areas where we're not yet sanctified, we confess, we repent, and the Holy Spirit works to change us. But then lastly, we confess to help others because Jesus says, hey, you can't properly help somebody else with their sin if you're not also dealing with yours, right? Like you can't go help somebody who has some minor sins in their life if you have some major sins in your life. Right, like it's where he talks about trying to, to help somebody, but you've got your own log in your own eye. It's not, it's not telling us that, hey, mind your own business. It's take care of your business so that you can properly help somebody else with theirs. Right, like it's, it's don't neglect your own life. Get your life right. Be actively fighting sin in your life so that you can come alongside and help others because that approach is gonna make somebody far more receptive to your help. <laughs> if they see you fighting sin on your own. All right, so we, we, we confess to be saved, to be changed, and to help others. And so the application question that I want to ask right now is, <clears throat> has anyone acted upon an opportunity to confess and repent of a wrongdoing towards someone else recently that you could kind of share how that went? Anybody been sensitive enough to the fact that they have hurt somebody or done something to somebody that needed to be confessed and repented of, and you did what Scripture told you to do, and that was to go to that person, confess it, and to work through it and experience forgiveness. Anybody have a scenario like that recently that you could kind of share? Well, I'll share. Oh. Kind of funny, but I had, I had shared with my accountability group last Sunday that I had kind of blown up at Bobby and that thing, you know, that things were fine, but whatever. 
and we were moving on. And so they kind of challenged me that I should probably just tell him that I was sorry for the way I approached him, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. Do I have to? Yes. Okay. So then they said, can we follow up with you make sure you did it? And I said, okay. So then I get a text on, well, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday, and Jen asked me, have you talked to Bobby? And I said, oh, no, shoot, I forgot. I said, do I really have to? She's like, I promise I'll leave better. So then I went to Bobby, and I apologized for the way I had approached him for what was going on. He's like, what are you even talking about? I don't even remember the situation. I was like, well, okay, that didn't work. That's good because it keeps you sensitive to it, even if. I remember. That's right. But I did it. Other thoughts? Any scenarios where you've had to kind of own a situation? Because remember, we talked about during this sermon. What's, what's genuine repentance look like? Like, what does somebody have to really do for you to think that they're being serious and genuine? And so we talked about coming in humility, not making excuses, kind of owning your part um, to experience reconciliation with people. So it works the same way we got to. Um, so we were at a game a couple of nights ago, and um, or it was actually a couple weeks ago, and we were... We were getting a lot of language from one of the players towards all of our players, and then when we tried to address it, um, it got flipped on us, and we were charged with throwing a racial slur on our team. And I, of course, investigated that, and found it, you know, no, nobody, you know, owned up to that. I could have been lied to. I'm not sure, but we did our part. But all that to say, we came to the field the next time we played them, and I was ready to, you know, come with my speech towards the refs and the other coaches about how this language wasn't going to be tolerated, but I overheard one of the parents talking to my assistant about um, just the things that they heard that we said towards one of their child, uh, toward, their, toward a kid. And so I went over there with the mindset of like trying to defend us, um, but then I found out that it was the dude's dad. And so um, it was just something in the moment that I started to just try to own the situation, like whether it was true or not, like just to apologize for even the the fact that we couldn't be above reproach about the situation and just tried to really seek to um, to, to meet him at where he's at with his understanding. And I was really thankful because I had all these things that I could have said that his son said to our kids, but I just said, you know, I'm going to let God handle that and just do my part for what I'm responsible for. And it was really neat because he thanked me for doing that and even expressed that he had had desires to leave their school and come to our school, but this whole thing just like, you know, threw that out of the window, but uh, it was neat to see that God changed in my heart on the moment to just own own it, as opposed to try to defend myself. Actually, led to a clearing up of a situation, and may end up something you know in the future lead to something that would benefit their family and even that child more than if I had come in trying to defend myself or try to set things right. So it was it was good to con- practice confession and repentance, even when I didn't think that we were wrong about it. Good. Other thoughts? Anybody had an opportunity to see this play out? The um, biggest application for me from it has been that it doesn't mean I'm sorry if you follow with but um, and your excuses for why you were behaving that way, that it means more if you come and just you're sorry. 
and, and leaving it at that and um, how that offers more of an opportunity for reconciliation. This is a great lesson to continue to instill in our kids as they're growing up that um, they need to see the responsibility they have to own their mistakes and confess those mistakes, repent of those mistakes, make, make things right with others when they wronged others. It's certainly a lesson that if they, if they learn it early, it certainly sets them up for better success down the road from a spiritual standpoint. Okay. Um, all right, let's jump into the next sermon, which was. Um, kind of a recap on the book of Revelation and things that we had been talking about. We said from a summary sentence standpoint, if we fail to hear the book of Revelation and do the book of Revelation, then we will ultimately fail in our study of Revelation. Um, And so Revelation is very application-driven in that blessed is the one who hears it and does it right off the bat in chapter 1, right? Like it's not blessed is the one who hears it and figures it out, right? Like that's not, that's not where the blessing comes from. The blessing comes from hearing the book of Revelation and doing the book of Revelation, okay? And so I, I think John, Jesus, who gives the Revelation, John, understands there's going to be a lot of stuff that we don't understand, a lot of stuff that stays confusing, a lot of questions that we're still asking when we finish this study. But what's going to be what, what is going to be left with us is, is some clear instruction that, that we need to do. A lot of questions that will still be surrounding this book, but plenty for us to get busy doing, and that's where the blessing comes from. Hearing the book of Revelation, doing the book of Revelation, and if we don't come out of this with changed lives, if we don't come out of this with new patterns in our life, then we've failed over the past year and a half studying this book. We may know more about Revelation. We may be uh, more comfortable talking about futuristic type things, but we will have failed if we're not doing things differently in our life than we were before we started the study. <coughs> so let's look at some of the reminders that I gave you. Number one, or wait, let me just walk you through them and then we'll get to the question. Number one, we talked about, and this was, again, fruit of me just reading Revelation 1 through 16 and just writing down things that I think we're supposed to do as I read through it in one sitting. One, fear God and give him glory for everything. That just comes over time and time again in chapters 1 through 16. Fear God, give him glory for everything. Number two, repent of your sin and your sins, meaning repent of your sin and be saved, and then keep on repenting of your sins to maintain sensitivity towards the fact that you are being pushed towards holiness by the Holy Spirit. Number three, worship Jesus and not idols. Worship Jesus and not idols, okay? Um, Idolatry is a big deal in the book of Revelation. Giving our affection, our attention, our love, our devotion to anything but Jesus just really doesn't work. Number four, be on guard for a deceptive enemy. There's gonna be deception that continues to come. We need to be on guard against it. We need to recognize it and not fall prey to it. Number five, serve other Christians because it is important. We see God's wrath coming upon people that hurt the church that hurt God's people. And so we need to be consistently doing the opposite, and that's serving each other, taking care of each other. Number six, do not fear what God controls, and that's the fact that God is sovereign over our life. He's sovereign over the future. We read Revelation. We hear about an antichrist coming. We hear about a beast coming. We hear about all these things coming, and we don't have to fear that stuff because Jesus remains in control. Don't fear the things that God controls. And don't love what you don't control, and that's your life. 
Time and time again in Revelation, we're told to not love our life, to be willing to die if necessary. To be willing to die if necessary. If God calls us to be persecuted to the point of death, to not love our life and to not shrink back in fear, to love Jesus enough to where we're willing to die because God remains in control of our circumstances. Number seven, we talked about being a lover of truth, um, that truth ought to be a, a way that people in our life characterize us, truthful people. I was talking about this with our um, middle schoolers in chapel last week. Um, it was crazy, like our speaker that was supposed to come couldn't come, and so I had about 20 minutes to get ready to do chapel, and so I just went back to what we had been studying in Revelation and pulled some things out, and I, and I told our kids, I said, man, if, if you're not known for being a truthful person, then, then burden is on you to show why you're a Christian because Scripture says truthful people or Christians are truthful people. Christians are truthful people. And we talked about the fact that if you're known for being a gossip, if you're known for being a slanderer, which let's be honest, in middle school, a lot of kids are known for those things. Man, middle school is, is drama central a lot of weeks for me. A lot of gossip, a lot of slander. I handled multiple situations at the end of this week that were just like mind-blowing how dramatic things had gotten because of what I thought I heard somebody else say. So I've got middle school girls sitting in my office and it's like, well, she said this, or at least I heard somebody said that she said this. And I'm just trying to work through this with all these girls and, and, I'm, and I'm drawing them back to chapel. And I said, remember what we talked about on Wednesday or on Tuesday? Christians are known for being truthful people. So here's your chance to be a Christian and act like a Christian and be truthful right now and remove yourself from the gossip and the slander because Christians are known for being truthful people. Number eight, they're also known for being passionate about purity. We talked specifically in the context of sexual purity. That's throughout the book of Revelation. Number nine, we need to work hard so that we can rest well for eternity because Revelation says that our deeds go with us, that what in this life happens counts for the next, that our deeds go with us. Number 10, pray knowing that you will be heard. We've talked extensively about how Revelation is God acting in response to the prayers of the saints. The saints pray and God responds and acts and moves on this earth, okay? So application question right now is, has anyone else done this? Has anyone else read through Revelation 1 through 16 in one sitting like I asked you to and then jotted down anything that kind of jumped off the page to you that previously you would have probably not made it through chapters 1 through 16 due to confusion? Any, anybody seen or can share any insight or just anything that's different this time reading through 1 through 16 than you would have experienced previously trying to do it because of our study. Anything's jumping out to you when you went back and read through it. And if you haven't done this activity yet, I, again, I would encourage you to do so. Um, hopefully you'll find it encouraging that it's not as confusing as it used to be, that there's more familiarity with the book of Revelation than you've had previously. Any thoughts or insight from doing this? Um, one of the things that we wrote down is um, oh, there it is. Um, um, that the act of loving and following Jesus cannot become hollow, um, and we must keep the love of Jesus at center of um, everything that we do, and there's a richness in our relationship with God that surpasses the richness one receives from physical things. Andrew and I have been really bad about that in the past putting all our focus on material things and money. Um, so that's something that we've really learned well, in the last few months here, but especially reading that, that really hit home with us. Mm -hmm. <coughs> you 
remember what point in Revelation y'all came in on? Um, we actually didn't come in until... Well, the day the they came, it was the Antichrist message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we kind of went through, we didn't read it in one sitting, we kind of went through and broke it up because we haven't read the yeah. kind of first part of it. <laughs> Other thoughts? So I didn't actually sit and read 1 through 16, but I was working on the ladies' journal for the retreat and um, just in a lot of that, a lot of what Adam had been teaching would come back to me. So I was able to use references from Revelation that I probably would have never even thought to use. So. For, for me, just actually having the fact that all my experience with Revelation with other churches and whatnot, because we came in during this talk, <coughs> um, has been so much almost kind of fear-mongering and, and just like, trying to get a step up on what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and the fact that there's actually, we can have regular sermons on publications for today from Revelation is something really kind of a new experience, um, that there's so much pointed information for the here and now mm -hmm. than just when everything's flying apart. Yeah, definitely. Once again, I hope that's the fruit, like Warren shared, I hope that's the fruit that, that everybody starts to feel is that I can go to Revelation for important insight and important reference to other things that I'm reading in Scripture. Because I think a lot of times it was maybe Revelation 21 and 22 that you might would go to, like some of the last chapters that talks about eternity and heaven that you might would reference regularly. Maybe the, the first part where there's discussion about churches and not being lukewarm and not being spewed out by God's mouth, you know. But, man, there's so much rich content in the middle there, things that are relevant to our life today, like you said, that... Um, hopefully we can continue to come back to Revelation even when we're years past this study that man we just keep going back to Revelation like we would to the book of Romans and, and pulling some of those important <coughs> passages back out any other thoughts on this? I had to um, I think just reading it as a whole seeing the, the patience of, of God and, and the delay for repentance and how um, faithful God is to give those of us who are believers who do need that confession and repentance, but also for others. Um, I think we had talked about it some about just God's judgment, like how one of our discussion groups one time was like, how can a just God? I'm like, but oh my goodness, he's delayed and delayed and delayed and given so many opportunities for response and for change. Like, that is a good and gracious God. And so just seeing that in the whole of, of those 16 chapters. Um, and then... <clears throat> Along with the confession and repentance, just um, that need to, I think one of the sermons that you did that I, that I go back to, like when I talk to my kids or just thinking about it was, you cut it out or I'll cut you up, um, just cutting that sin, like abolishing it, like we're not going to get a little bit out, like just a little, deal with it a little bit, like just... I mean, you know, I like tell, you know, think like dig deep down into the, you don't get that, you know all the way out and just um, I've been able to go back to that um, passage and you know really think about you know am I leaving anything behind that I'm not cutting all the way out and um, Good. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to listen to it um, and I long commute ride I just listened to it and so listening to it was was a great alternative to reading it in some ways too because you you just 
hear connections as opposed to seeing them or being distracted by words sometimes. So it was really cool, but I kept hearing like this continual loop of endurance. Like it's all in the churches, it's in the middle, it's in the end. It just keeps coming back to like to the one who conquers or this is available to those that, that remain steadfast or this is a call for the endurance of the saints. And so it, it was like in a big song, it was like the chorus that kept being sung. Um, Jesus is better, he's in control, but stead, hold fast. Jesus is better, check out all these ways he is, hold fast, like don't give up. Um, so listening to it was a really, really cool way to just kind of be reminded that, you know, in light of all the fact that he is in control and the things that are going on around us, like my job is to stand firm uh, and to hold fast. All right. Last week, um, <clears throat> we discussed a topic that has been present in Revelation, will definitely be present in the next couple of chapters as well, pretty heavily. And so um, we stepped back and talked a little bit about just the topic of sexual immorality and how to avoid sexual immorality in our life. From a summary sentence standpoint, we said Christians are called to remain sexually pure both in thought and action as an outworking of the gospel in their life for the glory of God. And so the idea here is that our purity is is tied to our ability to point others to the glory of God, um, that it's a testimony to the gospel when we pursue purity in our life. And when we step away from purity, it puts some of these things at stake in our life. Now, God's glory is never at stake based on our acts, but the ability for people to see God's glory in our life is certainly at stake when we pursue things that are outside the realm of, of what he calls pure. Um, So we talked about the gospel picture being at stake because all through the New Testament and in Revelation, it's it's described as uh, people who are Christians are pure in this area, right? Like they don't they don't they don't allow for impurity in this area. Man, they run from it, they flee from it. They there's there's not to even be a hint of sexual impurity in our life as Christians. Um, that that we work whatever it needs to in our life to to kill it, to put it to death, to remove it, to extinguish it. The gospel picture's at stake. The glory of God is at stake in our life. If we pursue sexual immorality, our sanctification is at stake um, because in in, uh, Thessalonians, Paul says that this is God's will for your life, um, to be pure in this area, to abstain from sexual immorality. Um, we talked about God's judgment coming upon people in Revelation who who are not pure, who who actively and consistently pursue sexual immorality. And we talked about our church and our friendships being at stake, right? That that the church is obligated to remove people who are sexually immoral. That that friends, believers are responsible to not associate with people who call themselves Christians and who also p- p- pursue impurity. That, that we're not to even associate with them. That we're to remove ourselves from them. And Paul says, I'm not saying to remove yourself from the world that lives this way. I'm telling you to remove yourself from Christians who live this way. Part of the reason is that it weakens us if we see this being tolerated. Man, like, I, I got a message again this week of another situation where one of our family members is, is separating from, from his wife, my cousin, leaving her for his daughter's boyfriend's mom. I mean, just, just kind of wreaking havoc in our family. And I, and I reached out to some of the, the brothers in, in, in that family, and I said, look, I am praying for you guys because this is not okay. And based on my studies in Revelation, like I'm just really sensitive to this topic right now, and you boys need to, to be the brothers that your sister needs right now and to go get this guy, to do whatever it takes to go communicate to this guy that this is not okay. 
this is not okay, that he's putting everything at stake with this decision. And, and I'm just really sensitive to this right now because I see how clearly Scripture communicates that as believers, this can't be tolerated in our life. It just can't be. Um, that it has, to be, it has to be cut out like Tiffany was talking about. It has to be weeded out. It has to be removed. And I think this is where a lack of confession and repentance about little things like this or little things lead up to this type of thing. Like this is a, this is a, a pattern of things that happened that led up to this that allows somebody to say, man, the thing that makes most sense in my life right now is to walk away from my family and my friends to go pursue something that God says no to. I mean, I, don't, I think you have to say no and you have to lack confession and repentance for a while to get to the point to where that makes logical sense. To walk away from everything, to, to pursue something that God says no to, and to think this is the best thing for me right now. I mean, it takes a pattern of, of just really lacking confession and repentance. We talked about how to protect ourselves, to seek accountability, to avoid triggers that we know will lead us into sexual immorality, uh, to be in the word regularly, to remind ourselves of God's good promises, that those things help protect us and keep us pure. We talked about different stages of life and how to be pure, right? Like we talked about the single aspect. Those of you that are single right now, you have, you have one job to do, and that's to figure out, am I supposed to be single or married? Right, Because Paul says, if you're supposed to be single, stay single and be single and serve God thoroughly in your singleness. And if you're supposed to be married, work towards marriage. Right? Doesn't mean go out and marry the first single person that you meet, but it means take steps to get ready to be married when the time comes. Man, I used Ben as an example last week. Like There are things that he can do to get Luke, his oldest son, ready to be married when Luke is at the, the appropriate age to get married. There's a lot of things that they can do together as, as father and son right now to make sure that when Luke is, is at an age where he's responsible enough to get married, that he can go do that. He can go pursue that. There's a lot of single people in our church that can do things right now to get ready for marriage. And I'll just use this as a, as a, little, a little, little, uh, little thing right now. There, there, are, there are too many people in our church that are single that don't want to be single forever. And we need to help kind of figure out some of that. I'm just being serious here. I'm just being serious here. There are, there are godly people in our church that need to do some things to get ready for marriage so that when God continues to, even if, the, even if your spouse is not here right now, your spouse may be here in a few weeks, in a few months, and you better be, you want to be ready when that happens. Man, whatever it takes to get ready to be married, pursue that pursue that. Paul says, if you're not supposed to be single, then work towards marriage because that is, is a necessary component to staying pure in this area. He says, this is one of the ways that God designed it, is for you to be pure in this area by moving towards a God-honoring marriage that is a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Don't not be married right now because you haven't taken steps necessary to make yourself ready to be married. If you're single, there is nothing wrong with being single. Paul says, man, that's a desirable gift if God's called you to it for the rest of your life because you have advantages over married people. You get to do things for Jesus that, that married people don't have time to do all the time. Man, so, so there's nothing wrong with being single, but if you know, man, I don't want to be single the rest of my life, do everything that you can to be ready for when God has that happen for you. Do everything that you can to eliminate any excuse for not getting married except for the fact that you're waiting on that person to show up for you to get married to, okay? 
for our married people, we talked about being intentional with each other to protect each other from sexual immorality, right? Bible talks about protecting the marriage bed, protecting the, the, the marriage so that nobody wants to bring somebody else in there, right? You do everything that you can to protect the purity of your marital relationship. You invest in each other so that neither of you ever, ever want to wander from that relationship. And then we talked about what Scripture has to say about divorce. And I would encourage you to be educated on the Bible's teaching about divorce. One, it will help guard you in your own marriage to realize that, that God's got some real strong things to say about the topic. But also to be educated because a lot of us are going to counsel people who are going through divorce. And we need to be prepared to offer wise and godly counsel to people who come to us and say, what am I supposed to do in this situation? What does God's word have to say about this situation? What counsel would you give me in this situation? Okay, Um, two questions then that I want to leave you with. Number one, is there any compromise in sexual purity that you need to confess and repent of today? Any compromise, anything that's small still, that if you fail to confess and repent of, we may be talking about you in a few weeks, a few months, a few years, being somebody who says, you know what, the thing that makes most sense is to leave my family and go pursue something that, that God says no to. Man, cut that stuff off today. Any sexual impurity, any triggers, anything that needs to happen that you can say, nope, I need to confess that, repent of that, I need to make things right. Do it today. Don't let that stuff fester. And then lastly, um, and for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you guys to, to, to maybe send this to me, send it to an elder. Um, what questions do you have about sexual purity or divorce that the elders can help answer? Because what I'd like to do, potentially next week, if not, then maybe in two weeks, um, is for us to use the first part of the service to help educate you better on what God's word has to say about some of these topics for this, if, if for no other reason, for the sole purpose of helping you counsel other people. Um, and so I want you to kind of think through any confusion that you may have about topics of sexual purity and divorce specifically. Like what does scripture have to say about that topic? When is it, when is it permissible for divorce? When is it not permissible? When is it permissible for remarriage? When is it not permissible? You may have certain situations that you want to send to us and say, hey, you know, I got a friend at work that's going through this. Here's the circumstances. How would you advise me to counsel them about this? Um, feel free to send that stuff to us because like I told you, the elders have been reading through a book together to make sure that we're on the same page about some of this stuff. We're gonna meet and talk and discuss it to make sure that we're offering consistent counsel uh, to you in the church. And so I'd love to have some feedback from you guys on things that we may need to talk about as elders in order to give you the best uh, information, the best counsel possible to help equip you in the people that you interact with. Okay, so feel free to send those questions to us. Um, But more importantly, man, really step back and evaluate where are you prone to potentially wander in your purity and make sure that you do everything that you can to cut that off, to cut that off. Scripture calls us to be pure. Let's make sure that we're striving for purity in this area. Okay? Any questions or or comments or thoughts on any of that as we kind of wrap that up? All right, Um, then let's turn our attention to uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, which is what we like to do each time that we have Application Sunday. Um, For those of you that are visiting today, we do this every seven to eight weeks or so. It's where we we just pause, we reflect on our past, 
sermons over the past month and a half. We talk a little bit about what they were, but then we focus on these application questions, things that we can do practically to take away from those sermons. We eat together, obviously. Sometimes we do it before for breakfast. Sometimes we do it after for lunch. We're going to do it for lunch today, so everybody's invited to stick around and eat with us and hang out together um, this afternoon. Um, But part of what we do on Application Sunday as well is this is when we build in time to partake of the Lord's Supper, to reflect upon the Lord's Supper and its meaning. And so um, I like to always read from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives instructions about the Lord's Supper, so we'll go there now. Actually, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. They had been abusive of it. They were taking advantage of it. And uh, Paul seeks to clarify for them what the Lord's Supper is. <coughs> it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So God has very graciously given us this um, this ordinance, this this public opportunity to affirm our faith in Jesus once again. And so while we confess and repent for salvation, we continue to confess and repent to stay sensitive to sin, to, to show the fact that we are still all in for Jesus, basically. And so the Lord's Supper is kind of the continuation of what takes place with baptism. Baptism is that public demonstration to everybody that we have been buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. We do that one time. That's the goal. One time we do it as close to possible after our salvation. We've done that recently with our Easter service. We baptized individuals who, who were saying, you know what, I believe in Jesus, and I've been buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. The Lord's Supper is something that we continue to do as a way of continuing to tell people publicly that we love Jesus and that we want to continue to follow Jesus. And so, um, and that's certainly, that's certainly a beautiful picture of the gospel. Both are beautiful pictures. Um, and one's a little bit more convenient for all of us to participate in this morning, right? That they both picture similar things. Baptism is our alignment with Jesus, right? Like we've been buried, we've been raised to walk. Today we celebrate the actual work of Jesus. We are, we are choosing his body, we're choosing his life over our best attempts at being good. And so when we partake of the bread this morning, what we are saying is Jesus' perfect life is better than my attempts at being a good person. I choose Jesus' perfection over my goodness. Um, when, we, when we drink of the juice, what we're saying is that, that Jesus and his sacrifice is the only thing good enough for God to forgive me of my sins. Like, there needs to be, there needs to be something done to atone for the wrong that I've done. It's also an admittance that my sin's pretty serious, that it required somebody to die for me. Right, so we're also saying that I'm not even remotely a good person because somebody had to die in my place because I'm that evil. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper today, we're saying, you know what? I choose Jesus because he's perfect. I choose Jesus because he died for me. 
You know, I deserve God's punishment. Jesus took it. I try to be good, and I can't be. Jesus showed up, and he did everything right. He was tempted as I was without sin. Um, and so what we're, what we're doing is we're really celebrating Jesus today. We're worshiping Jesus by partaking of the Lord's Supper because he gets all the honor and credit for our salvation by us doing this. Um, and so we don't believe that the Lord's Supper saves us. And so what we're simply doing today is confessing something that's already happened. We've been saved. And so I want to be clear. I think it's a good way to remind our kids this doesn't save us by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Um, it's also not something just for the people that are members here. So we invite anybody that's a believer to partake of the Lord's Supper here with us this morning because you're part of the, the overall body, the overall church of Christ. Um, but we do believe this is something only for believers. And so we would ask anybody who has not confessed Jesus and, and repented of their sins and, um, and accepted him as, as their savior to, to not partake this morning. This is, this is an act for believers. And so we even ask kids who are not believers to not partake. This is a way for our parents to teach their kids why they don't partake right now and what, what the gospel is. If they will ever partake of the Lord's Supper, they will have to first accept the gospel. And so um, it, it's a great way that God gives us to teach, to teach within the church, to teach about the gospel, to remind us of, of what the gospel is. And so we get to celebrate that this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to partake after I pray. We're going to give you some time to reflect, um, to confess, to repent, to, to worship on your own. Um, to prepare yourself, and as you feel led, to dismiss yourself to the back and to partake. Tyson's going to come, and we'll have some music playing for that time period. Again, you're, you're able to just kind of step up and, and take in the back as you're led to, um, as you've had some time to reflect on your own. Um, and then we'll sing together, and then we'll, um, we'll dismiss ourselves over to the next room to eat and to fellowship um, and to continue the unity that, that we partake in um, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Father, we do come to you and we thank you so much for the things that you're teaching us in Revelation. I pray that we would be faithful to do the things that we're hearing. God, we want to be um, hearers and doers of the word. And we recognize for us to, to do the word accurately, we have to hear it. And so we thank you that you've given us the word in written format in a language that we can understand so that we can truly know what it is you desire for us. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he can um, give us the power needed to do the things that we're hearing in your word. And so, God, as believers, as Christians, we ask that you would continue to change us and to conform us into the image of your Son. Help us to be obedient to your word. God, help us to be motivated properly to be obedient to your word. Help us to see that you call us to the best things possible, that your commands are not burdensome. So, God, help us to seek to apply your word realizing that it's the best thing for us. God, we thank you for the chance to partake of your supper this morning. We thank you that Jesus came to live a perfect life. That when we compare ourselves to the law, we fall well short of your holiness. We, should, we fall well short of your glory. And even the best individuals this morning, Father, we recognize they too needed somebody to die for them. So God, help us to all see our goodness in light of your holiness. Help us to all celebrate the perfection of Jesus by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, we thank you that your wrath has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross, made known through the, the juice this morning as we remember the blood of Jesus. We thank you that forgiveness has been extended to us. And God, we celebrate today, and we will continue to do so until you come back. 
And so, God, help us, even as we partake today, to have a longing created inside of us for Jesus to come back. Help that longing to increase more and more. We don't want to become enamored with the things of this world to where we're distracted and and we lose sight of the fact that all of history is moving towards the second coming of Jesus. We look forward to that day. I pray that today would remind us that that day is coming, that we're partaking of this Lord's Supper in anticipation of Christ's return. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.